and welcome to this series, Women in the Church. My name is Andrew Shea, the pastor of Teaching and Vision here at Branches. This study comes as a result of a larger journey we've had in clarifying our theology and practice for the Branches community. It was back in 2019, after praying and studying the scriptures, that the Branches Elder Board concluded a complementarian view of marriage and for church life best represented our interpretation of the scriptures as a guideline for our church practice, for our fellowship's practice. This means that we believe men and women are equal in terms of significance and value and equally gifted by the Holy Spirit for ministry in the church, yet they have different complementary roles in family and in church life. As we move to educate and implement practice in the broader body of branches, we were interrupted by 2020, as many of you were interrupted in your plans. With its various challenges, the discussion took a back seat as we dealt with the different crises of distancing and the divisions of our culture. When the dust from that period settled, it was time to revisit the topic. And so I'm releasing this teaching series, which reflects the stated positions and practices of branches rigorously grounded in the scriptures and extensive in its reach. Yes, I'll talk about gender, gender roles, and the ways in which men and women are equal but different, but I'll also be touching on a variety of universal topics like authority and submission in the church, unity amidst diverse perspectives. What does it look like for us to still come together even if we see things different ways? We'll also talk about the place of titles and the exercise of gifts in church ministry. By way of introduction, I would like to submit that the story of women and their part in God's plans as depicted in the scriptures is difficult to summarize, it's difficult to sum up given the variety of situations and cultural complexities of the times and places in which their stories are told. Meaning there were different views, there were different thoughts about women and their place in society in the same timeline as the narrative of the scriptures different times in which the books were written, which is to say the story of women throughout human history is not all that different from the complex story of women through the history of the scriptures. Times change, cultural norms change, and along with them, so do the practices and sensibilities of people in general. What remains the same is the biblical witness and the authority of God's word in guiding church practice through the ages. No matter what time and place the church finds itself in, it's always incumbent. It's always our responsibility, the present generation's responsibility. That's us to evaluate our traditions, practices, and assumptions against the standards and the principles of the Bible. In light of these considerations, we're wise to ask ourselves today a variety of questions. Like, how does the timeless impact of the gospel influence our understanding of gender roles in the church? What distinct roles or role, if any, do women have in the modern church? How is one to understand the relationship women have to discussions involving authority, ministry functions, and the various spiritual gifts? These are just a sampling of the questions we're going to look at and address over the four episodes in this teaching series. Now let's be real as we begin this study. 
Strongly convicted Christians, intelligent, generous, and faithful believers alike may disagree on the conclusions or answers that we get to for the variety of questions I just presented. Given the number of valid and rational interpretations of the scriptures that exist, as in many matters of church practice, we must resist the very human habit to instinctively label another person's practice as blatantly wrong when it may just constitute a different understanding. Romans chapter 14 verse 5 says, One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Meaning there was a time in the early church where one person is saying, hey, these days are set apart and more spiritual and holy and I'm going to observe these days. Someone else is going, well, every day is holy. Every day is spiritual because we're living for Jesus. And they had different views. And they all were told to make up their own mind about their own views. God has made allowances. God has made room and space for differences in practice and thought among genuine believers as human beings. It's the followers of Jesus that have not made that same room, that have not given allowances, but God has made those allowances. He's given room, he's given space for genuine believers to, to arrive at different conclusions, even as they want to share those immutable and universal theological truths. So we should all approach achieving a greater understanding on this topic with an eagerness and passion that does not betray the diverse unity God has established in the body of Christ. That unity that we share with each other is foremost. In the same chapter, Romans chapter 14, verse 19, Paul commands us, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. He's saying, yeah, there are these differences. You have this different view of these days. You have these different views of these eating practices. But every single one of us should place our unity in Christ as primary. So we're going to do everything we possibly can to maintain that peace and to build each other up in spite of our differences. In light of that mandate, we are wise to approach this discussion, the, the learnings that we're going to go through, the study that we're going to go through over these four weeks with a deep Christ-centered humility. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He goes on to say that he emptied himself of his divine privilege to die for who? To die for sinners. And he took on the nature of a servant. Think about this. He valued us when we were wrong, wrong as we were, above himself, right as he was to the point he died for us to save us from our sins. And yet it seems at times believers, brothers and sisters, will just belittle and devalue each other in our differences. Maybe you or I have what we believe is the only rational or sensible position on this topic or in these matters or in these conclusions we're going to draw. But if our heart and our conduct is in the wrong place towards somebody else who disagrees with us, that's going to be the gravest error of all that betrays the example of Jesus and his mindset in Philippians chapter 2. It's clear from an attentiveness to the scriptures that this topic falls into the category of disputable matters, mean, meaning there, this is a discussion not worth the judgment that brothers and sisters may levy against each other. Again, Romans chapter 14, verse 13. 
let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. So the onus is on me. The onus is on you. And the responsibility is on every believer to check our own biases and assumptions, to pull the plank out of our own eye before removing the speck from our brother or sister's eye as commanded in Matthew chapter 7. It's on us to deeply consider the thoughts of others that are going to be derived from the Bible. I mean, we're discussing the Bible, something that we're all relying on. It's on us to pray through our own present understanding before arriving at future tentative conclusions, asking Jesus afresh, seeking Jesus afresh through this study, through our discussions with one another, knocking at the door of wisdom that Jesus stands behind, ready to open for us. And when all is said and done, we've all got to set aside our disputing. No matter the conclusions we draw on the matter, applying ourselves to the unity of the fellowship under the single lordship of Christ and participation in his one body by the power of the one spirit as described in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, a valid question on the topic of unity is this, and I've heard it from time to time. If participation in this discussion, if going through this content over the next four weeks and talking about it opens Christians to debate and dispute, which may unintentionally harm the unity of the fellowship, the very thing that I'm valuing and talking about already at the outset of this teaching, then why should we even go forward with this? Why should we even talk about it? You know, why not just let bygones be bygones? That's a valid suggestion, and I understand the motivation behind it. It might even be the way that you dealt with conflict in your family growing up. You know, oh, let's not talk about it. Let's just brush it aside. Let's just keep the peace. Let's just keep the calm. But the approach of avoidance or keeping silent on the matter won't do anything to make the valid conversations go away or resolve them. And inaction and an inarticulation of the scriptures establishes a default position formed not on any articulated biblical convictions, but based on a branch's status quo from just our short tradition. To continue to not address the topic nor establish clear practice based on a true set of biblical convictions and to abdicate the responsibility of us as spiritual leaders on the branch's elder board by not facing the debate already being had by some is going to create a much more unintentional, irresponsible sort of disunity in our community over the long term. Having said that, I also want to be clear that this doesn't need to be seen exclusively through the lens of the potentially negative consequences that might come from humbly discussing, studying the scriptures, and praying through a tense topic. There's a lot of upside for this exercise. There's a lot of upside in going through this study and discussion. I mean, haven't we already been able to talk about humility, the mindset of Christ, the value of unity in God's one church? This exercise can bring about just that. It can be an opportunity for us as the branches community to bear witness to the uncommon unity the church ought to uphold in a world of differences and division all around us. Consider Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment. And this is that mystery, and this is that great purpose through Christ, 
to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That was God's purpose in Christ, bringing unity to all things heaven and earth. Sadly, on earth, many modern congregations will gather together only if, only if, they have a meticulous and detailed agreement on all matters of faith and practice. And that phenomenon has greatly reduced the intended diversity of the church and broken it into all these precisely the same pieces incapable of generous acceptance across the body of Christ. Such a breaking apart based on secondary differences and practices stands against the very work of the cross as depicted in Ephesians chapter 1. It stands against God's purpose and what he did through Jesus. That constant division in God's church stands against the intent of Jesus as he prayed for unity in John 17 before the cross. And that behavior, that breaking apart based on secondary differences in practice, oh, you have this fellowship that thinks exactly alike over here and that fellowship that thinks exactly alike over here and they don't interact, that behavior inhibits our gospel mission in the world. For John 13, verse 15 declares, we would be known as Jesus' disciples through our love for one another. So my goal through this discussion, through this study, is not to produce a meticulous conformity where we all think and see things exactly the same way on the other side of our time together, where we all become these sort of like branches, theology, clones. My goal is to model a humble and thoughtful approach to this discussion that may unite us across the spectrum of tradition and thought theology while producing a greater maturity as we pursue not just the thoughts, but the character of Christ in our relationships with each other. So all that to say, several positive outcomes are motivating this discussion, this study, these episodes that we're gonna be going through in Women in the Church. Number one, we're gonna be modeling a humble, thoughtful, and prayerful approach to the scriptures. Number two, we're gonna bring clarity and consistency, a unifying set of conclusions and practices that establish branches norms in its unique place across the body of Christ. Number three, this is an opportunity for us as believers to exercise patience and pursue unity amidst the diversity of the fellowship. And number four, finally, I believe the conclusions derived from engagement on this topic and discussion is gonna yield increasing strength for the entire fellowship of branches as women and their place in the life of the church are increasingly brought in line with what we see in the scriptures. Now let's turn to a broader survey of what the Bible says about women. It's natural to begin that survey in the beginning, in the book of Genesis. In its early chapters, the female gender was created by God as the final act of the total creation narrative. You can see this in Genesis chapter one and two. At the time of conception, women were endowed with God's image, the same as man. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 reads, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Women were furthermore created with the ability to function as one part of the complementarian and binding spiritual institution of marriage. Per Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. When a man and a woman, two people representing the distinct and different genders God created, 
when they come together, they were referred to as one flesh or one body. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Just as both men and women are co-created in the image of God, they are both considered partners in the single whole of the marriage union. Men and women alike also share the ignoble quality of being by nature sinner deserving of wrath. Both Adam and Eve became sinners when they disobeyed God's directives, even as their rebellion was expressed in distinct ways. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 reads, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. At times, Eve's sin is emphasized in the biblical witness, as in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. It reads, Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. At other times, it's Adam's sin that is emphasized in the scriptures, as in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It reads, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. No matter the particular emphasis in certain portions of the scriptures, the overriding theme communicated across the Bible is how the sin of Adam and Eve serves to represent the sin of all humankind through the ages, and how both men and women of all cultures and times require the redemptive sacrifice of Jesus. As in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In summary, both men and women receive God's image imprint alike and come together to form the one institution of the marriage union. They also share the reality of sin and the need for redemption through Jesus. And yet, for all the similarities, there are differences. Even from the earliest chapters of the scriptures, there were unequivocal distinctions attributed to men and women, respectively. For instance, in the creation order, women were endowed with the unique and exclusive capacity for childbirth and child-rearing, per Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. As part of the shared commission God gave to both men and women, instructing them to multiply and fill the earth, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Additionally, the consequences of the curse for sin, while overlapping in their impact, they're expressed with distinct implications for men and women, and even suggest the tension that will persist amidst their gender difference. You can find all that in Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. So while there exists a great deal of commonality between men and women in their essential nature as revealed in the creation narrative, there also remains clear distinction and difference in biology, and to a certain extent, there are clear differences in function within the family structure of marriage. Now looking to the New Testament, the work of Jesus both reiterates and expands the value and purpose of men and women alike as seen in creation. It reiterates the value of women as co-equal recipients, not just of God's image, but also of God's spirit through personal faith in Jesus. Acts chapter two, verse 17 to 18. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. As such, as recipients of God's spirit, women are recognized as full citizens of the kingdom of God. Acts chapter eight, verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God under the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Women are included in receiving the role of a disciple of Jesus. Acts chapter nine, verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. She was always doing good and helping the poor. And finally, women are ultimately considered equal inheritors of heaven, as in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The New Testament also clarifies that as much as women have the unique and distinct capacity for childbirth and child rearing established at creation. I mean, this is affirmed in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12. I mean, they have that unique and distinct capacity from creation. Even as it affirms that exclusive access to the role of wife in the complementary institution of marriage. You can see Jesus' teaching on that in Mark chapter 10, verses 2 to 9. Neither their valued role in the New Testament as wife or mother is to define their purpose in Christ. Luke chapter 8, verse 21, Jesus says, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. He goes, My mother is it's not about my mother being my mother. That's not that's not what makes her valuable as my mother. You want to know who my mother is? You know, more important than somebody being my biological mother, someone who puts the word of God into practice. They are family to me. So what this teaches us is that women are valued apart from the roles and capacity as wife and mother, as those who find their highest purpose and meaning in fulfilling God's will in Jesus. God may even direct them to abstain women from marriage and likewise from bearing children for the sake of their gospel-oriented calling. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, and also verse 32. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. This is Paul speaking. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. So Paul here is using the example of an unmarried man, but he's speaking in general to the unmarried. He's speaking in general about even widows. So this is not to negate the importance of the potential that women have as wives or in their capacity for childbearing. Both roles, you know, when applied to God's will, may be used for a kingdom purpose. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 mentions a believing woman leading her unbelieving husband to the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 1 speaks about Timothy's legacy of faith being born out from his grandmother to his mother to him. So God has a purpose in a woman being a wife or in a woman being a mother, and that can be utilized for God's will and purpose in Jesus Christ. Yet still, these other teachings are included on abstaining from marriage and consequently from childbearing. They're included to convey that a woman's central identity and purpose in Christ supersedes traditional and even the creation-derived roles of wife and mother. 
these amendments to a woman's purpose, novel in the time of Jesus, I mean, this would never have been taught before, reflect just how monumental a shift the gospel brought to understanding the place of women and the people of God and in society in general. If we look to the time of Jesus's ministry, the disposition, the general disposition of men toward women in both the Gentile and the Jewish world, that's in the Jewish world, the Jewish culture of Jesus, and in the rest of the culture across the world, in the Roman culture and beyond, the view of men toward women was decidedly negative in all the cultures and had been conclusively so for thousands of years leading up to the time of his ministry. It's clear that Jesus, in a variety of ways, subtle and overt, he worked from within his time and culture to reshape perceptions regarding women, their value, and their place in society. Many of those clarifying and corrective teachings are taken for granted by us as modern readers, as they may be perceived as tame given our current cultural moment. When in the time and place of Jesus, the things that he did, the things that he promoted as it relates to women, it would have been considered scandalous and revolutionary and often was so in the narratives that we read. For example, Many Jewish teachers in the ancient world advocated for men to have complete unilateral control over marriage and divorce, while Jesus and the New Testament authors held men co-equally accountable to fulfill their marriage vows. Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So you see, it's an evening of the playing field. A lot of men thought, well, I can just divorce my wife for whatever reason I want to. I have unilateral control over this relationship. Jesus says both are co-equally responsible and accountable in the marriage institution. Additionally, in the ancient world, women were seen as the exclusive cause and instigators of all sexual errors on the part of men. You know, it's always their fault if a man does something that was immoral, right? Because of the way they were appearing, the way they were acting, all responsibility and blame would be cast upon the women. But Jesus flipped the script and cast responsibility on the heart of the one who lusts. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The list of differences goes on. For instance, in Jewish culture, women were excluded from spiritual fellowship and inclusion based on sin or ceremonial uncleanness, while Jesus engaged and welcomed women regardless of these designations. You can see the episode of Jesus healing the bleeding woman in Luke chapter 8 and his encounter with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. In the ancient world, women were not to be educated in either the Jewish or the Roman world nor were they included as disciples of Jewish rabbis. But Jesus encouraged their learning and discipleship, as did the early church. See the account of Mary sitting at Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 10. Her place at his feet, learning, Jesus said, is not going to be taken from her. And consider Paul's directive that women are to join in the corporate gathering for the purpose of learning and being instructed in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Women were furthermore given prominent places in the gospel narratives that would have been considered off color to ancient readers. A woman was selected to bear the Son of God. It was women who were present at the cross when the male disciples largely fled 
You can see that in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23. And it was women who were the first to witness and attest to the resurrection. See Luke 24. Without explicitly reshaping all cultural structures and institutions in the time in which he lived, Jesus sowed the early sentiments regarding the co-equal value of women alongside men that have germinated into the largely accepted and common understandings we take for granted in society today. The reason there is a revisiting of a place of women in the church life and practice today is at its source driven by the work and teachings of Jesus from 2,000 years ago, working their way through history and culture to the present day. So we've covered a lot of ground today. We talked about why and how we're going to approach this discussion. We did a general survey of what the Bible says about women in the created order, what is said of women regarding their place in the kingdom of God, and we saw how Jesus was an advocate for women and their value in the ancient world. In our next episode, we'll begin to explore the topic of authority, how we see authority structures represented in creation, how Christians are to even conceive of discussions around authority and how authority is to be exercised in the church. We'll also start getting into a bit more specific details about the accounts regarding women's contributions to the church as recorded in the biblical witness. It's going to continue to be a fruitful and edifying discussion. I hope you'll join us for the next episode in this series, Women and the Church.